Thanks, everybody, for coming for Critical Care Hour. I want to talk about one of the most common things that we do in emergency medicine and in critical care medicine, and that's provide fluids. It's a simple intervention. We sit down, we have a sick patient, we click off the first net orders, we click off normal saline, we give fluids without perhaps a second thought. We'll sit down, we'll have discussions, we'll talk about medications. Adam and I did so on some sick patients, Joey, earlier last week, adjusting doses of these medications, potentially toxic medications, for creatinine clearance, which is very important. But ask yourselves, how often do we critically think about the fluid, the dose, and the timing to critically ill patients? And there's some emerging literature, there's a signal from the literature that Perhaps it actually does make a difference. So I want to start with a description. Having placed a tube in the basilic vein, cautiously and anxiously, I watched the effects, ounce after ounce, but no visible change was produced. Still persevering, I thought she began to breathe less laboriously. Soon, the sharpened features and sunken eye and fallen jaw, pale and cold, bearing the manifest of death's signet, began to glow with returning animation. The pulse, which had long been ceased, returned to the wrist, at first small and quick, but by degrees it became more and more distinct, fuller, slower, and firmer. And after six pints had been injected, she expressed in a firm voice that she was free of all uneasiness. Her extremities were warm and bore the aspect of comfort and health. This was the first description in 1832 of intravenous fluid administration by Dr. Thomas Lada, a student of Dr. O'Shaughnessy in London, England, and it occurred during the cholera outbreak when many, many patients died. And he administered two drachms of murate, two scruples of carbonate of soda to 60 ounces of water. I have no idea what those measurements are. <laughs> but what it resulted in was a solution of 106 millimoles of sodium, 78 of chloride, and 15 of bicarbonate, the first IV fluid administration. Two years after that, the first use of IV albumin. Forty years after that became, or Sidney Ringer developed his Ringer solution. Later that year, Hartman added lactate, and hence we had lactated Ringers, and thus began IV fluid therapy. And it is now, regardless of the patient population, surgical ICU, medical ICU, ED, the most common intervention we do on patients. There's some studies out there to say, well, how common is it? In the SAFE trial, they did a follow-up to that and said 37% of patients in the ICU every day get fluid resuscitated. I would think that actually is pretty low. I would say almost every patient in the ICU is getting some form of IV fluid therapy. And we give it, as you all know, for a variety of reasons. Correct hypovolemia, perhaps the most important, is to augment cardiac output and thereby improve tissue perfusion. And then a few days later, once fully resuscitated, perhaps maintain hydration.
And as you know, there are two big umbrellas of fluid categories. So we're going to touch on crystalloids, which are of varying tonicity. So we've got hypertonic. We're not necessarily going to talk about hypertonic fluids today, 3%, 23%, but varying tonicity, isotonic, hypotonic, hypertonic. And then there's a category further in the weeds of saline versus balanced solutions, which has created a lot of discussion in the last one to two years. We'll talk about some key aspects and what balanced solutions are. Then you've got colloids. So you've got semi-synthetic colloids, which are the hydroxyethyl starches, the dextrans, the gelatins. You've got human-derived colloids. So this is primarily albumin. And something that you may not be aware of is all of these colloids, it's, you're not simply giving hydroxyethyl starch or simply giving albumin. All of these colloids are actually suspended in crystalloid solutions whether that be saline or balanced solutions, you give them with a carrier or delivery vehicle. And depending on where you work, so where in the world you work, tends to portray what type of fluid you use. So in Australia, New Zealand, they really like albumin resuscitation, much more so than we do here in the United States. Depending on the hospital, depending on the specialty. So normal saline, surgical subspecialties tend to migrate more towards lactated ringers or balanced solutions. And as I said before, often we will leave this to the most junior physician to write the fluid order. But there's emerging evidence to say that we need to be as careful in selecting fluids as we would with any type of medication, a lethal or toxic medication. So really thinking about fluid as a drug, as a medication, that we're about to give to this patient because it absolutely can have adverse effects on patient outcome. We know, and we've talked about in previous lectures and previous podcasts, that the more fluid we give to patients, if they're on the flat portion of that starling curve, the more organ congestion in the lungs and the kidney, the more organ failure we set patients up for. The longer their ICU, the longer their hospital stay, perhaps the longer their mechanical ventilation and the higher their morbidity and mortality. We've learned a little bit in recent years about something called the endothelial glycocalyx, or the endothelial surface layer. So when we talk about a crystalloid or a colloid, in all of us in this room, healthy, hydrated patients, if we give a colloid, sure, it stays within the intravascular space and expands plasma. Whereas crystalloid, 80% is going to go into the extravascular space, or extracellular space, creating organ edema or tissue edema. The problem is in inflammatory states. That endothelial glycocalyx degrades. So you have a lot of movement into the interstitium. And something we all read and something we were all taught is that we need to give about three times the volume of crystalloids for every one or the one in terms of colloid administration. And it turns out that's probably wrong. Because of the degradation of this glycocalyx, the ratio is probably on the order of about 1.3 to 1. So it's almost in a one-to-one -one fashion. Colloids, albumin, it all goes out into the interstitium in disease states. If you take nothing away from this, this is something that I'm appreciating more and more and never had an understanding of or appreciation before. 
and that's the acid-base effects of fluid that you and I are about to give. We give volume because we want to store hypovolemia. We want to augment cardiac output. We want to improve tissue perfusion. But understand, regardless of the fluid that we choose, it is going to alter the acid-base milieu of the patient, alter the pH. And something that, once again, I've come to appreciate more and more is that it has nothing to do with the pH of the solution we're going to give. So saline has a pH maybe around 5. They all have pHs around 4 to 8.0. But that does not determine the effects of the fluid on the acid base of our patient. There's actually three things that determine the acid base status of the fluid that we're giving. And the most important is called the strong ion difference, or the SID. The second would be the total concentration of non-volatile weak acids. And the third, which is a very, very small component, is the PaCO2. This is a very, very important concept in understanding and selecting the right fluid for our critically ill patients, regardless of the location. What is the SID or the strong ion difference? It's essentially the net charge between the strong cations in the fluid. So you've got sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, minus the strong anions, chloride, and any other weak acid that has a pK value less than 4. It's simply strong anions minus strong cations, and the normal SID of plasma is about 40. Certainly, there's electrical neutrality, so there are a lot of weak anions in there that make it electrically neutral. But what we measure, the strong anions versus, or strong cations minus the strong anions, it's about 40. In terms of your non-volatile weak acids, it's primarily just albumin and phosphate. But here's what you want to be thinking about. As long as the CO2 remains constant, and for the most part, we don't really include that, even though it's an deter- ultimate determinant of acid base, it doesn't play as an important role as the strong anion difference. If you have an increase, if the fluid you're giving has a high SID, strong anion difference, and we'll, we'll, I'll illustrate what that is, you're adding more cations, that's more of an alkalotic solution, you create a metabolic alkalosis. If you dilute out the weak anions or the weak acids, that's less of a negative charge. Both of those together, or in isolation, cause a metabolic alkalosis. If you lower the SID, so the difference actually approaches zero, less cationic charge, that induces an acidosis. At the same time, if you add weak acids, that induces a metabolic acidosis. So let's just take saline, and we'll get into this a little bit more. But saline, what we always give, we click off, we administer to every patient, has no weak acids. So we're just going to give a bunch of normal saline, so that dilutes the weak acids, right? So that actually causes an alkalosis in our patient. But it's offset and overcome, once again, by the strong anion difference. Sodium chloride, 154 milliequivalents of sodium and chloride, 154 minus 154 is zero. 
So if the SID is zero, what does that induce? It's an acidosis. And that far counterbalances the dilution of weak, weak acids. So every time we give saline, depending on the quantity, it will always reliably produce a metabolic acidosis. Once again, it's not the chloride concentration, it's not the pH of the bag of fluid, and in fact, it's the strong anion, or strong ion difference, the SID. So what about fluids? So getting, thinking about this, what's the ideal solution? The ideal solution is certainly going to mimic plasma. So this is our normal plasma concentration, sodium-142, chloride-103, potassium-4, calcium-5, magnesium-2 or 3, with a pH that's equal, or neutral, 7.4, and our serum-osms around 270 to 290. The ideal solution certainly would be normotonic, so the osms are going to be around 275 to 295. The strong ion, strong ion difference, the SID, through a bunch of calculations that we don't need to belabor here, is 24. And it makes it easy to remember because that's essentially the serum bicarb. So a truly balanced ideal solution is going to have a strong ion difference of 24. And I'll illustrate what, you know, in terms of normal saline and the balanced solutions, what's that, what that means. The ideal solution wouldn't have any extra cations added and it would use bicarbonate as the buffer solution. How many of you know that on the intranet, UMMC has guidelines for fluid resuscitation? Has anyone looked at them? Tristan has. I know Brian Hayes has. But there is, in fact, guidelines for fluid resuscitation. This is what we have on our formulary. When you go back this afternoon to your next shift, or tomorrow, or tonight, you can choose from these formulas. This is what we have. Normal saline, lactated ringers, Plasmolite A, albumin at 5 and 25%, head of starch, and dextran. So you could select any one of these to give to your next patient, but how do we choose wisely? Let's focus, let me focus on normal saline for a moment. We virtually give it to every patient in the ED. And an important take-home pearl is that normal saline was never designed, nor will it ever be a physiologic solution. Never. It simply has sodium chloride with an equal amount and, once again, a strong ion difference or a SID of zero. It is always going to induce a metabolic acidosis. You can also see that in terms of the osmolarity, talking about tonicity, it actually tends to be a slightly hypertonic solution. So it always induces a metabolic acidosis that you know is a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis because the chloride of 154 is 40% higher than the plasma concentration. Superphysiologic doses of chloride. And we're learning that it may not be innocuous. Chloride is a pro-inflammatory stimulus. It can induce renal vasoconstriction. It can decrease the GFR and may, not conclusive, but may increase the need for renal replacement therapy. So normal saline reliably produces a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. So already begin to think in the patient who comes in who's really sick, who's acidotic, should we be choosing normal saline 
which will aggravate, exacerbate that pre-existing acidosis. So it really doesn't matter. For the most part, normal healthy patients does inducing this hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis matter? And probably for healthy patients, it doesn't. In general, that acidosis tends to be mild to moderate. The base excess never falls below minus 10, and the pH, normal pH, normal healthy patients, never really gets below 7.3. However, there is emerging literature, there's a signal from emerging literature that in the sicker patients, it may actually have an effect. Remember that superphysiologic chloride dose can be pro-inflammatory, can cause alterations in the lung, GI tract, cardiac, as well as coagulation system. And there's a little bit of evidence. There's two studies from 2012 to be familiar with. This was that of the Annals of Surgery. Took a look at adult patients. Now, observational study. Those that went in for major abdominal surgery, did they get normal saline on the day of operation, or did they get the balanced solution of plasmolite? 32,000 patients, you can see 31,000 got normal saline. 1,000 got plasmolite, but... From this observational study, it seemed that patients who got normal saline on the day of operation did a little worse. In addition, they needed more RRT, more blood transfusions, and had a higher incidence of postoperative infection. Associated, not causal, but a fairly big observational study. And probably one of the bigger studies you need to be familiar with in terms of fluid therapy was published in October of JAMA. So this is the association between a chloride liberal versus a chloride restrictive IV fluids administration strategy in critically ill adults. This was a prospective open label before and after study done in a single ICU in Melbourne, Australia to say, if we really look at our fluid selection and decrease the chloride content or administer fluids with lower chloride content, what effect does that have actually on kidney function? Is there a lower incidence of acute kidney injury from that? So what they did is they took six months and said, give whatever fluid you want. The majority of patients got normal saline, 4% gelatin, and a 4% albumin solution. That 4% albumin was in normal saline. So all of these patients got fluids that had that high chloride content. They then had a six-month education period and then six months of an intervention period where they said you can't use high chloride solutions. So you have to choose either lactated ringers, use 20% albumin, or use plasma light. Now, in severe cases, so patients who had really low sodium, TBI patients, those with cerebral edema, they said it's okay to, if you want to use normal saline or hypertonic, go ahead in those patients. But for all others, restrict the fluid to low chloride content. 1,500 patients fairly evenly distributed, and overall there was, in fact, a lower increase in creatinine rise. When you really delve into it, it's kind of borderline clinically significant, but there was a statistically significant lower incidence of increasing creatinine as well as acute kidney injury. Now, surprisingly, this did not portend out to mortality. And there are a few issues when you really dive into this JAMA study. It was, in fact, sponsored by manufacturers of plasmolite. Got to take that, <clears throat> excuse me, into consideration. The other thing that's interesting is that when the investigators here initially registered their trial, they put the outcome as base excess. And then they went back and changed it to composite endpoints 
of injury and failure on the rifle criteria, as well as increased incidence of creatinine. So there's a little bit of data manipulation and, once again, a manufactured study. But it's starting to lend, once again, the signal or increase the signal that perhaps always using normal saline may not be best for all comers. In fact, we may need to think about using what's termed balanced solutions. So what really is a balanced solution? Whereas the SID of normal saline, once again, is zero and will always create a metabolic or worsening metabolic acidosis, these balanced fluids, when you give them, there's the dilution of the weak acids, but rather than a much stronger lowering of the SID, it lowers them both together so it's more of a pH neutral effect in sick patients. It doesn't necessarily alter the metabolic milieu. As we talked about, the exact balance, or a balanced solution would have a strong ion difference of about 24. So if we wanted to make normal saline a balanced solution, never have any effect on pH, we would take 24 chloride millimoles away and replace them with bicarbonate. The problem is bicarbonate is not shelf-stable. So we can make a bicarbonate drip, hang it, and it will have an effect. But we can't make up a bunch of bicarbonate or put it in solution, throw it in a bag, and put it on the shelf for when we need it. Balanced solutions, instead of bicarbonate, they add organic anions. So you're familiar with lactate, lactated ringers, ringers acetate, also added gluconate as well as citrate. Lactate probably is tend, tends to be the best tolerated. Most of it gets converted to gluconeogenesis, so it can, in fact, have destabilizing effects on glucose control. But provided that there's no liver dysfunction, it's probably the best tolerated. We do have ringers acetate. We talked about that. Brian and I talked about during some shortages. It probably is okay. It doesn't have the effects of hyperglycemia. It's a little harder to come by, but in renal patients, it has been linked to dropping the blood pressure as well as some myocardial toxicity. Gluconate's fairly well tolerated as well as citrate. And then these balanced solutions also throw in some cations. So you'll see with lactated ringers, with plasmolite, there's a little bit of potassium, magnesium, calcium added to varied solutions. I'm not really sure that actually this makes any effect on patients or has any effect. There's really limited data to say that adding potassium or magnesium or calcium really benefits patients. It may represent more of a, it may be more representative of plasma, but doesn't in the end necessarily help patients. So it doesn't matter. Why do we talk about balanced solutions? Why should we start considering in some patients using a balanced solution over always using normal saline? Well, this was the trial we just went over, the open surgery trial, the JAMA trial, with its limitations. There are a number of other trials that have looked at normal saline versus plasma light, normal saline versus lactated ringers, normal saline versus Hartman solution, which is just a tad different than LR. And once again, there's that signal, not in mortality endpoints, but that surrogate markers of base excess, urine output, kidney injury, acidosis, some patients do better receiving a balanced solution than normal saline. There's even some literature now in emergency medicine to say that we should be considering balanced solutions. This was one just in, in 2011, so about a year and a half ago, resuscitating DKA patients with a balanced solution rather than normal saline. So this was a study out of LSU Shreveport, 
DKA patients looking at normal saline versus plasmolite. Small studies, so only 45 patients, evenly distributed between normal saline, plasmolite, and in fact, the acidosis resolved sooner in patients who had DKA, who got plasmolite, than those who had normal saline. So what balanced solutions do we have here? You're now considering, I've got a patient with a bad acidosis. Maybe I shouldn't give them a ton of normal saline. Maybe now I need to change and think of giving them a balanced solution. The two that we have here to choose from are plasmolite as well as lactated ringers. These are on formulary, and I think Brian has done a great job in terms of stocking some plasmolite in the ED should you want to choose that for your next patient. In terms of plasmolite, Notice here that the strong ion difference, all you're doing is simply adding positive and subtracting the negative. That strong ion difference, cations minus anions. You don't really calculate these bicarbonate buffers because as soon as they go in, they get rapidly metabolized. So plasmolite has a high SID. So remember, the, the balance is 24, right where our bicarbonate is. If the SID is higher, what does that induce? Exactly. So plasmolite's a slightly alkalinizing fluid. Maybe it might be a little bit better in selecting in that patient with pre-existing acidosis. It's right on the cusp of normal osmolarity. And then lactated ringers. The SID of lactated ringers is pretty close to 24. So of any balanced solution, it's probably the most balanced in terms of resuscitating, although Importantly, I think you should notice that sodium of 130. So the caveat being if LR is probably the most balanced, probably is not the best for TBI patients, those with cerebral edema, and those with hyponatremia. Those would be the caveats. So plasmolite is a slightly alkalinizing balanced solution. LR is probably the most balanced, but once again, paying attention to the lower sodium content in contrast to plasmolite and normal saline. Does it matter? Are we going to run up the cost? Probably not. So Dr. Hayes put this out in an email um, maybe about a year ago, actually. Normal saline, it's a dollar. Plasmolite is a dollar. Sorry, plas- uh, LR is a dollar, and plasmolite's $2 a liter. So the cost in terms of us caring for patients is really negligible in choosing between these two solutions. So ultimately, once again, in terms of the normal saline versus balanced solution, I'm not saying go back and completely abandon normal saline. For the majority of our patients, normal saline is going to be adequate for fluid resuscitation. But understand, because it's not the pH of normal saline, but the strong ion difference of zero, it will reliably and always create a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. So in patients who have extremes of acidosis, pre-existing acidosis, we might need to consider actually using a balanced solution in terms of their resuscitation. Plasmolite, because of that strong, positive strong anion difference, tends to counter, is alkalinizing and tends to result in more rapid resolution of acidosis. Now, does that improve mortality? We don't have the data yet but signals from the literature say that it is now important to consider using these balanced solutions. Let me just touch on albumin. 
So we kind of cover the umbrella of crystalloids, saline versus balanced solutions. What about colloids? So the human-derived albumin versus the semi-synthetics. With respect to albumin, there probably are two indications, one for sure, one that we want to consider using in the emergency department. So as you know, albumin makes up 80% of the colloid osmotic pressure, and it's the major antioxidant. Even though it was first used in 1834, it wasn't really consistently available to the 1940s. And you can get it either 4 to 5% or 20 to 25%. As I said, here we have 5% and 25% albumin. In you and I, if I give you a bolus of 100 cc's of 4 to 5% albumin, almost 100 cc's stays in my intra, your intravascular system at least two hours beyond the infusion. If we give you 100 cc's of 20 to 25%, that's about four or five-fold stays in your intravascular system for the two hours following administration. Not so much with disease states. Remember, that endothelial glycocalyx breaks down and essentially... It's almost the same as crystalloid in terms of extruding into the interstitium. Colloid or albumin was used a lot, especially in Australia and New Zealand, up until around 2000. In 1998, the Cochrane Group published this systematic review taking a look at albumin in resuscitating patients with hypovolemia burns and hypoalbuminemia. They included 30-some trials, 24 of which had mortality data that included 1,200 patients. And what they concluded is that patients who were resuscitated with albumin had a higher mortality. Now, that was all based upon smaller trials. However, following this, up until about 2004, the use of albumin plummeted in terms of resuscitation. In the UK, it dropped by 40 to 50%, until about 2004 when the SAFE trial was published. So recall Safe Trial, New England Journal of Medicine, 16 centers, New Australia, New Zealand, taking a look at 4% albumin in normal saline versus normal saline alone. 7,000 patients, ultimately there wasn't any harm, so there was no mortality benefit. But this is where the subgroup recommendation in terms of the surviving sepsis campaign, its inclusion in the Delaney meta-analysis that we've covered before, in 2011, suggesting that perhaps there may be a benefit in patients with severe sepsis. Once again, subgroup analysis, patients with severe sepsis tended to do better if they got albumin. A follow-up study from this trial, and even in this trial, found that in contrast to severe sepsis patients, those that had TBI had increased mortality. And it tended to be the severe TBI patients, the GCS of three to eight, did really worse. So certainly avoiding albumin in head-injured patients. But as a result, Cochrane went back, took a look at it, reanalyzed the data, and said it doesn't appear that there's any harm in terms of albumin resuscitation. Now, in that review, because SAFE had 7,000 patients, 90% of the patients in that meta-analysis were from that SAFE trial. But what about its use for our patients? When do we want to consider it? Remember, we have 5 and 25%. Essentially, the osms are a little roughly isotonic, a little bit hypertonic. But we have 5% available in 250 cc bags. So that's about 12.5 grams. In terms of the 25%, notice very hyperoncotic, 1,500 milliosms per liter. And it comes in either 50 or 100 bags, so either 12.5 
or 25 grams. And per our guidelines, per the literature, you want to consider giving albumin in patients with SBP. We've talked about this a little while ago, but many of you may not be familiar. If you diagnose a patient with SBP, so you do the tap, and, you've got, and you're highly suspicious, so you've got greater than 250 polys, recommendations would be to go ahead and give albumin within about six hours of that diagnosis, 1.5 grams per kilogram of a 25% solution included in our fluid resuscitation guidelines. And we talked about, I think last month, or maybe Haney mentioned in terms of sepsis, considering albumin as an adjunct to crystalloid fluid resuscitation in patients with severe sepsis. It's a weaker recommendation in the latest surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, but it's worth considering if you're giving a lot of fluid, a lot of crystalloid fluid to that septic patient, consider giving that 250 milliliters of 5% albumin infusion to those patients. So SVP and potentially severe sepsis septic shock. And lastly, in the remaining minutes, I'm just going to touch on starches. It tends to be, there's three big studies from this past year alone, 2012, that, that are coming close to putting the nail in the coffin for hydroxyethyl starches. If any of you listen to John Myberg, his recent lectures, he's often quoted these starches as saying that they're simply albumin in drag. Um, something that I didn't know, but these starches are actually derived from potatoes or maize. And they're characterized by molecular weight as well as essentially their substitution ratios. And the newer generation of starches, we, we've known for a while that higher molecular weight, higher substitution ratios are linked to increased kidney disease. The newer generation of starches have lower molecular weights, so around 130 kilodaltons, and then lower substitution ratios, so about 0.38 to 0.45. Three big studies. This was the first, of, literally about a year ago, the 6S study that we've covered in the past. New England Journal, taking a look at 800 patients, in essence, with severe sepsis, comparing HES, which is 130, and the substitution ratio of 0.42, to simply normal saline. And those that got the starch did worse than those that got saline. This was in critical care 2012. This was the Christmas study, taking a look at 130, and 0.4, which is voluvin, taking a look at normal saline versus normal saline in patients with severe sepsis, 200 patients. And the results of this trial were actually fairly interesting. What they reported is that the time to improvement in hemodynamic status was better with HESS, and it required less volume. But when you really got down to it, the volume difference was only about 300 mLs, which probably isn't a clinically significant outcome or significant improvement. But the trend towards higher renal replacement therapy and higher mortality, although not statistically significant, were similar to that of the 6S. And then the most recent, the largest study to date on hydroxyethyl starches, October 2012, the CHEST study. This was out of Australia and New Zealand, once again taking a look at voluvin or 130-0.4 compared to normal saline. 7,000 patients. Now, there was no mortality difference, but there was a higher incidence of acute kidney injury or need for renal replacement therapy. If you look at the two patient populations with 6S and the CHESS study, it seemed that the CHESS study had lower mortality, so a less sick patient population, 
Okay, that's why the mortality benefit wasn't there. And they also included some elective patients, so not necessarily those getting emergent resuscitation. But nevertheless, really the conclusion as we sit here today at the end of July 2013 is that most feel these starches really shouldn't be used any longer in critically ill or very sick patients. So we can kind of almost close the book on this type of fluid resuscitation. So in the remaining minute or two, you know, where does that put us right now in terms of fluid resuscitation as a few hours from now, some of you will go back and start writing for fluids. We still don't have definitive evidence that one fluid is, the, is superior to any other and should always be the go-to fluid for resuscitating critically ill patients, whether they're in the ED or whether in the ICU. But there certainly is emerging literature. We have observational data to, at this point. And certainly there seems to be a signal that choosing wisely or selecting the IV fluid, we need to have as much attention to what we're choosing, the dose, as well as the type of fluid, as we would with any type of medication, any type of lethal or any type of toxic medication we should be paying the same amount of attention to selecting the IV fluid for resuscitation. Even though we're selecting it to restore cardiac output, remember when we give a fluid, it will absolutely alter the acid-base equilibrium of that patient. And the three determinants and the most important is going to be that SID or the strong ion difference, the non-volatile weak acid concentration in the PCO2. It does not depend on the chloride concentration. It does not depend on the pH of the bag itself, but more importantly, that strong ion difference. Normal saline, something that we write for almost in every patient, remember that strong ion difference, 154 minus 154 is zero. And even though it dilutes the weak acids, it's a stronger acidotic and will always and reliably produce metabolic acidosis, a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. Normal saline, as I said earlier, was never meant and never will be a physiologic solution. So in terms of selecting balanced solutions, this tends to be where the direction is going. Much like we're using dynamic markers in fluid responsiveness, there's more attention now to balanced solutions. So ensuring that that SID approaches that 24, that magic number, the bicarbonate of 24. Plasmalite having a more alkalinizing solution, so a higher SID of 50, might be better for patients with pre-existing acidosis. Might. And then thinking about lactated ringers, it tends to probably be the most balanced solution with a SID close to 24 of 28. Remembering that there's a lower sodium content of lactated ringers. In terms of albumin, it still has a role not for resuscitation of hemorrhagic shock, not resuscitation of TBI, but certainly in that sick liver patient with SBP, giving a dose of albumin if they're with us for at least six hours, and considering the administration of albumin in patients we're resuscitating for severe sepsis and septic shock. And then finally, no need to really consider hydroxyethyl starches. So with those three studies, it looks to be certainly that the door is closing on 6% HESPAN or hydroxyethyl starches. And I'll leave you with this. Getting back to Dr. Thomas Lada and his first description of the administration of IV fluids. 
This being my first case, I fancied my patient secure and from my great need of getting a little repose, i.e. heading off to sleep, left her in charge of the house surgeon. Big mistake. (laughs) But I had not been gone long ere the vomiting and purging recurred, soon reducing her to a state of debility. I was not appraised of the event, and she sunk in five and a half hours after I left her. As as she had previously been of sound constitution, I have no doubt the case would have resulted in complete reaction had the remedy, i.e. IV fluids, simply been reproduced. The effect would have been repeated. So I wanted this to be a little bit more thought-provoking talk in terms of selecting IV fluids. Certainly the trend, the direction of where the discussion is going nationally and internationally in terms of fluid resuscitation. And I hope that as we go back to our next shift, we can start to think about this a little bit more and perhaps choose wisely for some patients.